looking to preach the book of Ephesians, I kind of skimmed through the whole book. And uh, this week, chapter 3, was not a week that I was looking forward to. Uh, I felt like the first week and the second week were, were slam-packed full of uh, just great biblical truths that you could sink your teeth into and that you could reflect on throughout the week and, uh, and not get tired and just really be encouraged about what you have in Christ. And then as I read chapter 3, I thought, mm, man, Paul kind of uh, takes a break here. But round about Friday night, Saturday, as I was finishing up getting everything ready, I really, really got excited about chapter 3 of Ephesians. There's a couple things in here that I think that you're going to find mind-blowing, and I'm excited to share them with you today. So let me go to the Lord in prayer, and I'll get started. Father, thank you again for allowing us to be here at this moment. Lord, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. God, I pray that you would use me, your servant, to feed your people, and God, I pray that uh, we would behold absolutely magnificent things from your word. And God, I pray that when we leave here, uh, we will praise your name all the more for the great things that are contained in your word. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you'll open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, that's where we're going to begin. But by way of review, let me catch you up from the last two weeks in about 30, 45 seconds. The letter that Paul writes here, the, the letter to the Ephesians... Uh, the first, the earliest manuscripts we have of this letter don't have the words to the Ephesians. And so we here we have a letter from Paul, and we know that it ended up getting to the Ephesian church, but we're not 100% sure that that was its original destination. We just know that this letter was, was at Ephesus. And so all of the later manuscripts of this letter say to the church at Ephesus. Uh, popular, uh, some scholars believe that this letter could have been what's called a chain letter. And I told you it's not like some of those creepy emails that you get that if you don't love Jesus, don't delete it. Uh, those sorts of things. It wasn't one of those things. This was, Paul was in prison, and Paul writes several letters while he's in prison, and Ephesians is one of them. And so he writes kind of a, uh, a short, all-encompassing treaty of what a healthy church looks like. And we call it the book of Ephesians. So it could have gone to the church at Ephesus and then been circled around to all of the other churches that Paul planted. So the letter Ephesians is somewhat of a short version of the book of Romans. And if you look in Ephesians, well, you stay in Ephesians chapter 3, I'll review. Paul starts the book of Ephesians out with three chapters and then it closes with three chapters. I told you the first three chapters are all what we call theology. All of chapters 1 through 3 tell you about what you have in God and what your position is in Christ. And then because of all the great things in chapters 1 through 3, you have verses chapters 4 through 6. And he's going to be kind of in your face and tell you how you should now live because of all of the great things you have in chapters 1 through 3. So he starts out in chapter 1 telling you that you were chosen to be holy and blameless. He said that you have incredible spiritual blessings, some of which are forgiveness of sins and redemption. We said that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Satan owned you, but God adopted you into his family and chose you to be one of his own. Now, one thing that I didn't share with you in the last two weeks that you'll need to know for this week is that when Paul uses the word adoption, he's playing on something that all of these people would have understood. You guys understand the terminology of adoption, but in the, the Roman society in which Paul wrote, adoption was huge. 
it was very common for families to adopt. And it was very common, and everybody knew that when you got adopted into a family, you took the father's name, and you got all of the rights that the father had, and you were an heir in the family just like you were a blood child. So much so that you guys have all heard of uh, Augustus Caesar. He was adopted. You guys have heard of the Emperor Nero. He was adopted. These people that were adopted into royal families ended up inheriting the throne. And so if you were adopted, you are just like a blood member of the family, and you got all of the rights, and you got all of the benefits of being adopted. And this was incredibly tangible in their lifetime because whoever's the guy who's emperor, while this is written, Nero, he's adopted. And he's the emperor. So you have all of that takes place. Then Paul tells you, like we said, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You couldn't get up. We talked about dead people don't have a lot on their mind because they're dead. They're not interested in the things of God, but God goes to them and wakes them up. And he, he helps them to be spiritually revived so that they can believe. Now, we also said that uh, Christ's purpose was to take the Jews who were the chosen ones and the Gentiles who were far away from the promises. Through the cross, we said in Ephesians chapter 2, Christ reconciles both of those groups together. And now we have one new person. Following me? That's a pretty quick review. Now we move to chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Ephesians says this, chapter 1. For this reason, the reason is that now Gentiles are heirs of the promise. So for that reason, the prisoner, excuse me. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Then he says in verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and the prophets. And so Paul says, you heard of the grace that was given to me. You've heard of the, the vision that I had. If you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gets called up to heaven, has a vision. He says that no man gave him the information that he has about the Jews and the Gentiles being reconciled, but God himself gave him this revelation from heaven. And so you've heard about that, he says. And then he says, in reading what he's read or what he said earlier, you'll have understanding as to the things that God revealed to him. Now, going on to verse 6, it says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. And so the mystery that was kept hidden was how are the Gentiles going to come into the fold of Christ? How are the Gentiles going to be included? If you were to read uh, in Daniel chapter 7, you'd find that all of the Jews understood that through Abraham, the nations of the world were going to be blessed. Everybody understood that. Nobody had a problem with the Gentiles being blessed. The mystery that was kept hidden is that now those Gentiles are included with us in the gospel. So he says the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the same promise in Christ Jesus. 
Now, I'm going to hint to something about Abraham, and then when we get to another section at the end of Ephesians, I'll tell you more about it. But God, in his infinite wisdom, takes a guy named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to draw the nations of the world together, and through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. And so he begins to do that with Abraham. Well, the Gentiles also receive blessings through Abraham, but the, like I said earlier, the big question is how do those Gentiles become like us? And the answer is in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 tells you, this, is, this gets a little bit wordy, so hang on. Romans chapter 4 tells you that the real Jews were those who believed, not just those who were born into the Jewish faith. You following me? Now, when we say Jew, you understand both political and religious. If you were born in Israel, you're a Jew, right? You're, you're politically speaking, you're a Jew. Now, if, if you are a Republican or if you are a Democrat, that doesn't give you any spiritual value whatsoever. You are, I don't know, that's just your political affiliation. So if, you're, if you grow up and you're born in Israel, you're a Jew. That doesn't make you a religious Jew. Now, all through the ages, whenever Jesus walks the earth, you can see that all of the, the followers, uh, all of the Pharisees and everyone, they got so caught up in their political standing, they were Jews. They were children of Abraham. Well, Romans 4 comes along and says, no, all throughout history, the real children of Abraham are those who had faith. So it's possible for you to be a Jew and not really be a Jew. Following me? Jews were not just a political group of people. Jews were a people of faith. And if you weren't a person of faith, then you weren't a real Jew. And Romans chapter 4 is going to tell you everything you wanted to know about that. So this is going to come into play a little bit later. So I bore you a little now to impress you later, hopefully. Now, verse 7. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so Paul looks around and he says, I recognize that I, Paul, am least of all people. I'm, I'm less than the least of all people. But God gave me grace and he gave me a gift to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so Paul recognizes that telling the Gentiles about Christ, remember I told you last week that if you're in this room, 99.999% uh, chance you are a pig-enjoying, buns-barbecue-eating Gentile. Remember? And that you're in good company because I am one also. So you're a Gentile. Paul says, grace was given to me. To preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul realizes that preaching the gospel isn't a I have to, but it's an I get to. God gave me grace and he gave me a gift to be able to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So when you do this thing we call evangelism, don't make it a heavy burden for you. It's not a, oh, I, I have to tell my friends about Christ or the pastor's going to be mad at me. No, it's a you get to tell your friends about Christ. And Paul didn't just stop with telling them about Christ. Paul said this. He said, 
I I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. And he says, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, not just to preach some boring sermon about Christ, but to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. If If you struggle with telling your friends about Christ, you don't understand the immeasurable riches that you have in Christ. You should, you should meet an unbeliever and, and you should get this feeling inside of you that yearns to tell them about the unmeasurable riches that they have in Christ. When an unbeliever comes to your house, when the Jehovah Witness knocks on your door, you should get excited that they should come in and you get a chance to tell them about the unmeasurable riches they have in Jesus Christ. When you go to work and your coworker doesn't know Christ and they're lost, you should get this feeling when you're alone with them that you are excited and you want to share with them the immeasurable riches that they have in Christ. But we don't. Because many times we don't realize what the immeasurable riches are. Jesus was walking along and he told a story about the kingdom of heaven. I'll read it to you so I don't mess it up. It's Matthew. Don't turn there. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And so a guy is walking along through a field and he finds a treasure. And he is so enamored at the greatness of this treasure that he he hides it again. And then he goes and what does he do? He sells everything that he has so that he can go back and he can buy this treasure. That's Christ. That's Jesus. He's the treasure. He's the treasure worth selling everything for to gain this one thing. And Jesus says, if you guys didn't get that, here's another one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So you picture, you picture the kids' movie Aladdin. That guy in the beginning of the movie is the merchant. He's got this whole cart. He's got all of these trinkets. He's got a ton of pearls. Uh, A merchant of pearls would probably have just a bag of pearls. And so he could pour them out on the table and you you could pick from which one you want. And so this merchant finds one pearl. And he goes and he sells everything he has. He sells all of his other pearls. He sells all of his other things so that he can get this one pearl. Listen to me. Christ is the pearl worth selling everything you have and gaining. There is nothing in your life that is more valuable. There's nothing in your life that is more satisfying than Christ himself. He's the treasure. And you have an immeasurable treasure in Christ. And so it shouldn't just be that you're, oh, hey, let me tell you about this guy, Jesus, because I'm supposed to. No, it's that you love lost people and you have this treasure and you want them to have it too because the treasure is immeasurable. And so if I share it with thousands of people, it never gets any less. There's no dent put in the treasure just because you share it with somebody. And so that's what Paul says. This grace was given to me so that I could preach Christ and the immeasurable riches that you have in him. Some of those riches that we talked about are not just monetarily. They satisfy the soul. You have things like forgiveness of sin. You no longer have to walk around burdened by your unforgiven sin. You have redemption. Whether you realized it or not, you were dead in your trespasses and sin and you were happy. 
you were happy living a wrathful life against God, but he saved you. Romans chapter 2 is going to tell you more things that you have in Christ. You have his patience. You have his long-suffering. You have all sorts of other things that he gives you. Uh, I put down kindness, tolerance, and patience. Even lost people have these things from God. Because in Romans, he's going to say, don't you realize that God's patience brings you to repentance? And so even if somebody rejects Christ, you can still tell them about the gifts that he's given them, the patience that God shows with them. Anyways, so we can finish today. Verse 9. So he not only wants to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, he wants to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And so Paul wants everyone to understand this administration. This administration, this this Christ bringing Jews and Gentiles together, isn't something that was new. It was a mystery. Not like a murder mystery that we have now. Don't think that sort of mystery. But think of mystery as something that's hidden. God didn't let you know this beforehand. The scriptures say that at the proper time, God sent his son Jesus to, to draw the world to himself. And so this mystery was kept secret by God. Some of that, or excuse me, was kept hidden in God who created all things. Some of you guys may not be good with that. Some of you guys like to think that you have to know everything. The truth of the matter is that there's a lot of things that you don't know. And more so, there's a lot of things that you don't know about God. There's a common American mindset that when you die and you go to heaven, you'll know everything. Americans like to think that. But I dare you to find that in Scripture, that you'll know everything. Uh, When you go to heaven, you will see more clearly. You will see Christ in a new light, but you won't know everything. God knows everything, not you, not I. When you get to heaven, you won't know everything there is to know about God. When you stay in heaven a billion years you still won't know everything about God. God is immeasurable and unsearchable, and you will go in eternity, and you will never comprehend the greatness and the vastness of God. And that's what makes him God and not us. You see, a lot of people think of heaven as whatever their favorite thing is. So let's just say, I like golf, and so heaven is golf. And so we play golf for billions and billions and billions of years. That does sound more like torture than it actually sounds like heaven. The reason that heaven is heaven is because Christ never gets old. He's immeasurable, and he you will never understand everything about him. And every morning that you wake up in heaven, you will be more enamored with the greatness of Christ with each passing day. And Paul realizes that he's been given the grace to take this message to a people who were far away, but now through Christ has brought near. To the Gentiles. So, verse 10. His intent, this is, this is when it gets really good. We, we haven't even gotten started. This is when it gets great. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Do you get that? That God's purpose, his intent, was that through the church, through us, remember, not through this building, This building's not the church. We are the church. If this building burnt to the ground this week and next week we met at the convention center, our church would still be intact. 
God's purpose and his intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That means that there's rulers and there's authorities in the heavenly realms that God wants to blow their mind through you, the church. Is that not impressive? That God's plan is for the church to, to uh, shucks, what does he say? is that the church should make known to them the manifold wisdom of God. Now, the word manifold, I always thought of manifold as something that when you have two oxygen cylinders, you have a manifold that connects them, and it balances the pressure between the two. When he uses manifold here, he's talking about like a multicolored cloth, or he's talking about a person who collects crystals that has various crystals. And so you're looking at something that manifold means very varied Try saying that a thousand times fast. So if something is very varied, it's what this word manifold means. And so the, the very varied <laughs> wisdom of God is supposed to be expressed through you. Now check this out. God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And then he, he also creates all the angels and Uh, He also creates Satan, who was an angel. And so everything in the world, everything in existence, was created through God. Now, we don't know how much special information they get. We don't know what sorts of things they get to see that we don't. But we are told that the angels look at the salvation that we have, and they're baffled by it. That the angels long to look into some of the things that we can And so God wants to use us, the church, to blow the minds of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so this is what God does. He takes Adam and Eve, and he creates them perfect. He creates Adam and Eve in his image, and what do they do? They sin. So now, God says, through the seed of a woman, I'm going to redeem all mankind. Then what does he do? He says, through Abraham, I'm going to draw the nations of the world to myself. So you, have, you go from Adam to a promise that God makes to Adam. Then you have Abraham, who's going to be the start of something great. And so Abraham begins to obey God. The world is being drawn to him. Then God takes the nation of Israel through Jacob. And this is what he does with Israel. This is going to be short and in a nutshell. He makes Israel some promises in the book of Deuteronomy. And he tells Israel, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll curse you. And so God says that my plan is that Israel obey me, that Israel keep the laws that I'm giving them, and then I can be a blessing to the whole world. So if you were in ancient times and you were a citizen of Israel, it was your job to obey the law. And when you obeyed the law, God would bless you. It's as if God was uh, sitting standing here and he had a bunch of little kids around him. And if you're getting ready to cross a street with a bunch of kids, the way that you get them to follow you is you sprinkle candy and they follow you, right? And so that's what God's doing in Old Testament times. He's, he's giving out blessings and he's keeping the people close to him. And what God's doing is that he is residing in one place. God resides in the temple. And so if you went to the temple and you invited your friend and you said, hey, come to God's house, you would be accurate because the temple is where the presence of God lived. And so you read more in the book of Hebrews that as people would come to the temple, that the Holy Spirit would work on their life and and what they saw at the temple, the sacrifices, and the Holy Spirit would yearn in them that there's a way for them to enter. But it's been not, not 
been made known yet. And so God is, is doing all of these great things. He's, he's choosing a guy named Abraham. He's, he's giving blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And so all of these cool things are happening. You have prophets that are coming up that are trying to keep God's people still. You have a guy named Elijah who God's spirit lives in and works on. And so if you were to ask a bunch of really, really old guys before Christ, what would it be like if everybody had God's spirit like Elijah? They would say, wow, that'd be incredible. And so God's next plan is God no longer wants to reside in a temple, in a house. Christ comes, forgives you of your sin. God gives you a new heart and his spirit indwells you. And now you are the house of God. And so what just happened is that there was, get it, there was one house One temple in Israel, people came to there to meet God. And what does God do? What is God's plan? God's plan is to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And then after he dies, he sends his spirit to fill you. And so now God's spirit isn't just confined to one place, but now God's spirit is all over the place. And everyone who believes, that blows the mind of the Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That God's spirit is over the entire earth indwelling all believers. It probably also blows their mind that we do so little with it. If you read your Bible and you stopped in First and Second Kings and all you did was read about Elijah and how great he was when the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, if you read about Elisha when the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, you would go, wow, what would it be like if everybody had that Spirit? Then you should realize, hopefully right now, that we all do have that Spirit. Let's keep going. This is mind-blowing. Then he says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. This is verse 13. I ask you... Therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And so Paul realizes that he's telling them all of these great things while he himself sits in prison. And Paul says, don't worry about my sufferings. My sufferings are for your glory. We talked in Sunday school this morning about the book of James. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you suffer trials of all kinds because those trials build perseverance and perseverance when made complete makes you a mature believer in Christ. And so Paul says, don't worry about my sufferings. I'm counting it joy that I'm suffering. I'm suffering on your behalf. Remember, it was because of Paul's success that the Jews threw him in prison. And so they should be glad that Paul was so successful and they should glory in the fact that he did so well. Now he says this, it keeps getting good. He says, for this reason, this is verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Remember, I told you that when you're adopted, you get, you get the father's name in Rome. When you were brought into a family, you get the father's name. Now he says, I kneel before the father from whom his whole family, us, all believers in heaven and on earth derive their name. He says, I'm praying to the God whose name that you share. I'm praying to our common father, and I'm praying this. I'm praying that out of his, this is verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. He wants you to be strengthened with power. That word power is a word that uh, in the Greek is called dunamis or dynamis. It's the same word that we get dynamite from. 
So the power that he wants you to be strengthened with is the same word that we get dynamite from, an explosive type of power, a power that when it goes off, it moves things. Boy, for y'all to have that kind of power, y'all are dead as a doornail. So I hope y'all wake up. You, he wants you to have that power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this word dwell doesn't just mean live. This means that he feels at home there. Okay? There's a common phrase that that we as church people use that we should probably get away from. I think it was fitting for a long time. I think that a lot of you understand it and a lot of you are really comfortable with it. But the newer generations don't understand it so much. So he wants you to be filled with power so that Christ can feel at home in your heart. The, the wording that I'm talking about is Billy Graham and his generation, uh, when it came time for people to be saved, they used fr- the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. Now, from what I've found, the only place that the Bible talks about Jesus being in your heart is here. And so Billy Graham and his generation, they readily understood that when you invite Jesus into your heart, your heart is where you make all of your decisions. So you're, you're giving over your life to Christ when you ask him into your heart. They understood that. Just so that we're on the same sheet of music, your children probably don't understand that the way that you do. When you hear, ask Jesus into your heart, you hear and you understand repentance and faith and all of these other things. Your children don't hear the same thing when you say, ask Jesus into your heart. They hear something that that sounds a little bit weird because our generations are so different. So keep that into your mind. That's why when I give an, an invitation, I will give one not asking Jesus into your heart, but one about faith and repentance and following Christ. Billy Graham and, and his, uh, his buddies that were preaching around the same time, they all used that language. They knew what they meant. But now I think that people don't understand it as much. So don't hear me condemning it all. Hear me saying that I don't think that it's understood in this generation the way that you understood it. So he wants... You to be strengthened with power in your, through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ can be, can feel at home in your heart through faith. Then he says this, and I pray that you be rooted and established in love. Verse 18, I pray that you may be rooted and established in love, that you may have power. This is not the dynamic dynamite power. This is an inherent power that you would have an inherent power together with the saints for what? What does he want you to do? He wants you to be equipped with God's power so that Christ can feel at home in your heart. And then what does he want you to do with this power? This is what he wants you to do. That you may have power together with the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. And so he wants you to be filled with a dynamite type power for what? So that you will understand the width and breadth and depth of God's love for you and how incomprehensible it is. Why would Paul want you to have this power in your heart so that you can understand how much God loves you? Because everything you do for God, everything that he's going to ask you to do, you're going to do out of an overflow of the love that he has for you. 
Why do sufferings and trials come your way? Why do you, are you supposed to count it joy when you experience these trials? It's because you're being filled to the measure that you are with Christ. Just lost it. You're being filled to the measure you have of the fullness of God. And so however much you are, you're being filled with the love of God. When you suffer trials and all of these other things, temptations, trials, tests of various kinds, your cup gets bigger. And you can be filled more with the love of Christ. Right before I moved here, one of my best friend's wives lost her 18-year-old brother in a car accident. And Jesse and I went to their house. And listen, when you go up to somebody's house where something tragic like that happened, you don't have anything to say. You just offer a hug. And so in us not saying anything, the dad of the child said this. He said, I don't understand what God is doing, and I haven't been as close to God as I should have been in the past. But right now, in the midst of this trial and suffering, I feel loved by God more than I ever have in my entire life. Those trials... Allow God to love you more in a way that you wouldn't have let him had nothing bad happen. And so Paul wants you to have this power inside of you so that you can understand the love, the breadth and width and depth of love that God has for you. He wants you to understand. He wants you to have the power to understand the unsearchable greatness of his love and the incomprehensibleness of it. I might have just made up a few words there. They were good ones. He wants you to understand how great it is because it doesn't make sense and you can't understand it on your own. You need his help. And the reason he wants you to understand how much Christ loves you is because in chapter 4, he's going to say, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's going to say, I want you to know how much God loves you because out of that love, you need to act a certain way. And the only reason that you act a certain way is because you know that somebody on the other end loves you. Your dog, you will probably have far more success with your dog if you give him a treat when he goes outside to use the bathroom instead of you beating him with the newspaper when he does it on accident. We react better when we have blessings. You tell a kid, hey, if you, and I'm going to do this next week, you behave during the children's message and I'm going to give you a treat. That works a lot better than, hey, you misbehaved during the children's message and I'm going to take you out of there and give you a spanking. They respond better when they know that someone loves them and they're going to give them a treat. God treats us the same way. He says, I want you to know how much I love you because I want you to act a certain way. Now in closing, he says, now to him, this is verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You think you know God? He says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So to God who's able to do more than we ask or imagine, to him be the glory. Not to you be the glory, not to me be the glory, not to our children's program be the glory, or to our choir be the glory. To him be the glory in the church. Amen. 
if you're here and you don't have the hope or you've never understood the love that I just described that Christ has for you, I beg you today to allow me to introduce you to Jesus Christ, who, while you were dead in your trespasses and sin, grabbed you and loved you and makes you alive with Christ. So if you're not sure that you're going to spend an eternity with him, please let's talk. Maybe you do know, and maybe you haven't been worshiping him the way that you should. During this invitation, I pray that it would be a worshipful time for you to sit on and to stew on the greatness of God that we've talked about. Lastly, um, I also pray that during this invitation that you might ask God to give you the explosive sort of power needed through his spirit so that you could understand the great love that he has for you. I guarantee you it'll change your life. God loves you. And this isn't, I'm not some ushy-gushy, girly preacher who's going to always pat you on the fanny and tell you that God loves you. But when he says he loves you, I'm going to tell you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And you cannot comprehend how much he loves you apart from being quickened by his spirit. And he wants to do that for you. And so you having a crummy week? Pray that God will reveal to you exactly the love he has for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then Jonathan. God, I pray everything that I just said. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they experience the great love that you have for us. God, I pray that as we go throughout our week, that you would, um, in a mighty way, empower us through your spirit to understand the breadth of love you have for us. Just like the Hubble telescope is in space and looks as far as we can imagine left and right and still doesn't see it all, I pray that we would in the same way look all around us and still never comprehend the greatness and the unsearchableness of the love you have for us. And so, God, go with us this week. And, God, as we enter this time of invitation, I pray that you would stir people's hearts so that they could grow closer to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For coming, I appreciate seeing all of you guys. Thank you for making uh, this a priority on this Labor Day weekend. I hope that uh, the lake and the river is sunny for you throughout the rest of it. I pray it rained on the people who aren't here. <laughs> Just jokes. You think, right? But nonetheless, it was great to see you. I pray that and hope that you uh, have a great week. Don't forget about our smoke detector uh, ministry that we're getting ready to start up this, uh, this Thursday. Guys, uh, I'm telling you, it's a joy to see you this morning and hope that uh, the rest of your extended weekend is nothing but uh, sunshine and roses. So as we go to the Lord in prayer, Bill Powell, will you close us in prayer?